there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. I am personally loving life right now. The weather is gorgeous, which in D.C. in August means no humidity. Uh, I'm also single and loving it. My wonderful husband and teenage son and my four-legged daughter are off at the grandparents for the week. So no cooking, no laundry, no dog walking, shuttle bus driving, grocery shopping. It is a wonderful thing. Do not get me wrong. I love my family, but it is nice to have a staycation even when you're working 15 hours a day. Most of you, I think, are not in that boat, but trust me, you will appreciate it one day. Enough about me. Grab your mug, take a chug, because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And in honor of the back-to-school season, my guest today is someone whose job is dedicated to working in the educational data nonprofit space, working with public school districts and nonprofits across Dallas and the state of Texas to help fix education inequity. Marie Apple is the manager of analytics at the Commit Partnership, which is a coalition of over 200 partners that work collaboratively to help solve the Dallas-Fort Worth region's biggest systemic challenges, which include improving early education, early childhood education, rather, preparing and retaining effective educators, and increasing post-secondary completion rates. Marie, Welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated with your tea and ready to go? Yes, I am. And thank you for uh, having me. Ready to ready to talk. Excellent. So let us get right into what you do as the manager <laughs> of analytics at the Commit Partnership. What the heck does that mean? You know, my friends and parents are still asking me that. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the lovely things about the nonprofit space is everything's a little bit fuzzy um, because you're trying to make everything work with a lower budget than a business probably would. But uh, hey, I've been there. I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) But I think we we get it done. I specifically work. I'm I'm one of the managers of the analytics uh, team. I work a lot in data and technology. And so um, a typical day for me might be um, building dashboards for some of our nonprofit partners so that they can figure out where they want to expand to their next service campus. Or I'm working with our advocacy team to give them the best data that they can so they can go down to Austin and ask legislators to do something like approve full-day pre-K for low-income students. And so really what I do is help use data as a tool for the rest of our nonprofit and our partners and our partner districts to go out there and make either better decisions and more informed decisions with the data or um, just kind of get them thinking about things in a different way than they had before. But when I cut it short and just tell the aunts and uncles, I do numbers. I do education numbers. (laughs) How long has this approach to, you know, advocacy, working in education been around? How long have has this level of kind of data been in play? 
That's a great question. Um, I think like many of your listeners, I'm probably too young to know the answer. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, I can give you the context I do have. Commit has been around for about six years. And then this level of data transparency in Texas at least has been around at least since 2012 with some some data um, out there before that. But what we say about Texas is that it is a very um, data rich state. A lot of uh, especially education data has to be publicly available because of the way our laws are set up. But we're data rich, but we're information poor. So there may be every data point ever on the achievement gap of um English language learners and, and native English speakers, but it's all in a website that takes, it would take you 10 minutes to pull one report from. So how are you supposed to act with information if the data is too hard for you to understand? Um, and so that's kind of part of what we do is translate that. And I think that Dallas overall is ahead of the curve um, in terms of taking numbers and making sense of them. But then when I talk to friends um, across the U.S. that work at other places similar to Commit, it really depends um, on each city how far along they are in their data journey. How did you discover this track? I don't want to call it a niche, but how did you discover the data track? Well, that's a good question. I think it is. I would call it a niche. Um, I So I come from a background where you know, I was, we, you know, call it a working poor um, rural area. And so one of my goals coming out of college was I want to make sure I'm always employed. Um, and I realized that my, my love and my passion was in education, but education overall, when you think about it, you don't think of it as being a high paying field and nonprofits overall are not exactly a stable, stable form of employment. And so I looked around and said, let me assess the situation. Where is there always going to be a job? Said one, there's all, we're always going to need teachers. So I'm going to get my teacher certification. Two, I see this thing with numbers and I see it taking off and I want to get on that bandwagon because I see that data is becoming very valuable. And so I took a few classes, but for the most part, I Googled my way um, to learning at Google and YouTube, my way to learning quote unquote data um, because I saw that it was the next big thing um, within the education field. And luckily that gambles paid off. <laughs> so wait, break that down. You Googled and YouTubed <laughs> your way. What does that mean? Yeah. So I, I took a few stats classes in college. Um, I wasn't very good at them. Um, but I, when I was in the classroom, I started realizing that the way that our kids information, I wasn't even thinking of its data yet was being tracked was a mess. There was a system for attendance and a system for grades and another system for grades with a tent. Like it was a mess. And so I brought back, you know, I, I brought my computer and I opened up Excel for the first time in probably, you know, five years from when I learned it in high school for, you know, half a semester and kind of just started typing in my kids' grades. And I said, well, no, wait, now how do I sort this by which kids did, you know, how well on what test? Okay, so I Google it. Oh, okay, there's a sort button. Well, now how do I group them? Oh, okay, I can do an if, this function, blah, blah, blah. And so it really was out of a need for real information and usable data that I started to learn 
excel just for my own classroom's use. And then I wouldn't say that I was necessarily a good teacher, but one of the strengths that my principal did see that I had was that I was good with this Excel stuff and figuring out, you know, what the data was saying of which kids needed an intervention on what. So instead of just saying, okay, Martavius is having trouble with reading. Well, reading's a pretty broad subject. Um, let's break that down. And you look at the data of which words he had been getting wrong and he struggled with the BR sound like bruh, broom. Um, and so then you work with him on specifically just bruh broom instead of here's a book. Let's see what we can do about it. Right. And so data was allowing me to be a better teacher because God knows I needed it. <laughs> so was this when you were in Missis in the Mississippi Delta working at Teach for America? Yes. Yep. I was a teacher at Teach for America in Jackson Public Schools. Um, and so that's where I kind of started to learn Excel. And then when I knew that I was leaving, I, I knew that for many, many reasons, the classroom wasn't my form of impact on the education system. Um, and so I started looking for, for jobs still in the education sphere, but knowing that I kind of had this, this, you know, I, I guess I'd call it a skill, but I, I also just really enjoyed data and liked how clear it made complex problems. Um, and then I got an interview with Dallas ISD's human, human capital or HR department as a data analyst. And the interview, they literally give you 30 minutes to do it online. And so I literally had YouTube up teaching myself what a pivot table was while I was in the interview trying to do a pivot table. And I finished the finished the interview. I'm in a Panera in New York because I'm still trying to figure out if I'm moving to Dallas. And I finished the interview and I'm like, oh, Lord, I'm never going to get that job. I had to Google all the things to do it. I get a call back 10 minutes later and like that was the best we've ever seen. Oh, my God. <laughs> what the and heck is because- a pivot table? <laughs> well, that might take more than more than the time you got today, but uh, it's it's I would say it's an intermediate Excel skill that um, you know you can teach yourself with with YouTube. These you know, twenty years ago that would not have been possible. This would be such a even more niche skill that. I would have had to have gone for to school for, and I would have had to train and know all these languages, coding languages. And that's just not the case anymore because of advanced technology. And I'm counting YouTube as advanced technology in this case is everything I don't know how to do in my job. I YouTube it. And so that goes to the question that you asked um, at one point during the espresso shots of what skills are we looking for? I don't even necessarily need some of my new hires to know data. I need to know that you're resourceful. Do you know that you can go YouTube this and teach yourself instead of having to say, oh, Marie, I don't know how to do that. Like, can you teach me? No, there's a lady on YouTube that already teaches you in 10 steps. She's got to figure it out. Try that first. (laughs) Then if you don't know, you come to me. And so, I mean, overall, there's just so many resources online that data is one of those fields that you can break into completely online. So let's go back to your current job as manager of analytics at the Commit mm-hmm. Partnership. Can you take me inside a typical day? And, you know, if I were a fly on the wall, what would I be seeing and hearing? What would you be doing? What, you know, how long is your day? Just take us inside <laughs> one day. Sure. So, um, well, today um, I spent the morning actually working from home, which was a flexibility that I did not think I would ever have as someone working roughly in the public to slash nonprofit sector. But that's because I spent the first three hours of my day head down, headphones on in some data. And so I am building a tool that will allow the entire state of Texas to pull all of their students' test scores for the last seven years. So that's the first three hours of my day is just completely uninterrupted, deep thinking with data. From there, um, then I'll head into the office and uh, I will maybe do something like work with our advocacy team to develop 
different data strategies to push for the bills that we're trying to pass in Austin. So for example, I might say, okay, you're meeting with um, so-and-so legislator next week. And well, according to the data, uh, his district is um, mostly rural and there's only four schools there. And the, the major job employers are these four companies. Okay, so that approach is going to look very different than when I talk to a senator from Houston who all of his constituents live in two apartment buildings right next to each other because his district is smaller. They all go to a few different schools. Maybe there's charter schools as competition. So long story short, I'm taking my data and helping customize our approach to different problems so that we can get the end result that that's, you know, overall research has proven is best for our kids. Um so I don't know if that makes sense yeah. for most people, but <laughs> it, it, it does. But I have to tell you, from where I sit, listening to you talk, you sound a bit more like a computer programmer. <laughs> yeah, that, I would say about 50 percent of my time is what you would normally consider computer programming. But again, it's not the same as it was even five years ago. Um I would be being generous if I said I knew SQL well. I do not know really very many coding languages or very much about the ones that I do know because there's new tools that are out um, in the world and, and being taught even in universities now that were not taught when I was in college just six, seven years ago that allow you to do analytics without having the years spent learning a different language to be able to do that. And I don't mean Spanish or Italian. I mean um, you know, Y X equals parentheses, blah, 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 that type of thing. I don't have to know that much of that type of thing because technology has advanced to where you don't, you can teach yourself on YouTube. So Marie, what is that? What are those shortcuts that you're alluding to? What are they called? If you want to get specific, there are two tools that I spend most of my day in. One is called Alteryx. That's, uh, A L T E R Y X. Um, the other one is Tableau. Um, and they are really user-friendly versions of um, what used to be done in code. And so Alteryx is a, data, is a um, data blending and data cleaning tool, and Tableau is a data visualization tool. And so those are the two main things that I live in every day. And is that something that you taught yourself over YouTube, or did you actually take a class? I would say a lot of my learning is coming from YouTube, but um, we also have, um, so I took a, I was in a fellowship for Tableau, so I did a year-long course, but we really only met three times, um, and a lot of the resources are online. Um, and then for Alteryx, we've been so lucky. Um, and if anyone works in education, um, or a nonprofit, or even if you're just, if you're a student, you can get Alteryx for free, um, through their Alteryx for good program. And so I actually applied and got a license for free and was just tinkering around trying to learn it. And then next thing you know, we've got a team of 21 volunteers from the Alteryx for good, um, volunteer team. And they come in and these are people that they're analysts at like Southwest Airlines. Um, and that's their day job. But then they take some time off to help me and my team learn Alteryx and do things like pull all of the school finance data for the last 10 years in 10 minutes because they're so good at these tools because this is their their job. Right. Um, and so a lot of it has come through support through volunteers that you have to work to get. Um, you know, it's definitely not been been easy to make all these connections happen. But then once you do, you find some good people to help teach you, then you're just set. And it's great to just have somebody to ask those hard questions to 
But honestly, my first um, go-to when I have a question is first the internet. And then I ask a person. (laughs) You're definitely making me feel very guilty because I'm one of those people who like wants to have a human explaining it. But (laughs) as, as a solopreneur now with a few summer interns, I am having more and more to try to solve the issues on my own because I don't have like the IT person in my office or Mm -hmm. the more experienced person in my office that I could go to with questions. So you know what? I got to, I got to do that. I got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Um, Marie, before I move into a bit more about you and your education and whatnot, could you give Java junkies an example of where you feel you've had impact through data, where commit has actually been able to move the needle. I think our biggest example, and I do not want to say that this was commits doing, but um, one that we were kind of a partner in this and spreading this around is what's called the ACE program. Um, and this is something that Dallas ISD piloted that takes schools that have been um, under-resourced and failing for years and incentivizes the best teachers to go work at that school. So teachers were getting like a 10 grand um, stipend to come work at that school. Um, and we have seen massive growth. Like the the graphs look like something out of um, out of a textbook for showing like this is success. See exhibit <laughs> A. Um, and so that's somewhere where, you know, we worked with districts to get that started. Um, and a lot of our staff actually, you know, and myself included, were at DISD before um, coming to commit. And so we worked with them to get that started. But then once we saw that the data really showed that this did work, now we're working with districts around the state to kind of replicate that ACE model and bring it to other school districts um, so that they can have those exhibit A successes as well. (laughs) Wonderful. Marie, you mentioned a few minutes ago about growing up, as you described yourself, as a member of a family in the working poor, you know, who are working poor. What was that experience like and how has it influenced your career path to want to go into education? I, I just describe, you know, and, and no no hate on Navarino, New York, population 300, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I grew up in kind of like a rural, what I call rural poor farming town that you know, our, I don't think our school system was the worst, but it definitely wasn't the best. Um, and it was just very, very rural and very different than um, what, you know, urban schools look like. Um, and so I graduated with uh, a class of 67 people um, and that, you know, and that's a public school. Um, and I saw a lot of things throughout my public school experience that now that I look back on, I think about kind of, you know, I was I was not always the most well-behaved kid. And I think about why I acted out and I see it, you know, I saw it in my students is I was bored and I knew I deserved a better education than I was getting. And so the times that I acted out was when I realized that my teacher that was teaching me Spanish didn't know the Spanish language. So I'm not going to go to Spanish class. (laughs) Um, And so I kind of started seeing some of the the breaks in the education system there. But um, through, I don't know, grace of God or something, um, I was actually valedictorian of our high school. And I got and then this had to just be, you know, magic. I, uh, I got into Harvard University and I was the first in my family to even go to college, much less Harvard. 
Um, and so I'm coming into Harvard as the valedictorian of my school thinking like, oh, great, this is going to be like smart kids camp. Like we're all going to go and be <laughs> smart together. Um, and I take the the placement test to figure out what you know math and English classes you're going to test into. And um, I definitely had a mini panic attack during that. And, you know, not not joking, like I was really freaked out because I was like, oh, my God, I've never even seen problems like this before. Um, I've never even heard some of these math words because the highest our math classes went was pre-calculus. So when I saw calculus problems, this was the first time I've ever really felt just dumb um, and like there's no way that I could know this. Um, and so, you know, many tears and I get my my score back and I scored a negative one on the math placement test. Um, and what, so is the, very, what is the range? Like how high? Could you zero have? to a hundred? You got a <laughs> negative one. I that's how bad at math I am. I don't even understand how I got that number. <laughs> well, my dear, you're the manager of analytics. You're teaching yourself how to do all of these complicated things by watching YouTube videos. You're not bad at math, <laughs> but that exactly that's that was part of the journey that I had to overcome. Um, but when I when I saw that, my first thought was not necessarily just that I'm bad at math, but I'm unprepared compared to my peers. Um, so many of my my peers either went to private school or really um, really good public schools, um, and that inequity just hit me in the face, especially knowing that my school wasn't, wasn't the worst. There were definitely schools that were even worse than mine. And so that type of injustice just doesn't sit well in my soul. And so from then on out, I knew that I had to work in education because the idea that just where you're born determines whether or not you get to go to a good school, um, and whether or not you have the same outcomes in life is just, inherently unjust and not the, not a society I want to live in. So I had, I knew from that on out, I was going to spend my life trying to fix that problem. So how did you come to apply to Harvard? Well, uh, um, they actually, Harvard started an initiative the year before I got in to attract more diverse students um, and not just diverse in terms of, of race, but also geography and income. Um, and so they actually had a, a little kind of recruitment fair in Syracuse, the city that I live outside of, um, where the dean of students came and talked and said, I was a first generation college student. Um, my dad owned a gas station and my dad's sitting there next to me and he owns a car wash. And we're like, Ooh, okay. This guy's like us. <laughs> um, and they asked us to apply, but then they also said, um, we have a new financial aid package that we will fund, you know, if your if your family makes under X amount, we will fund 100% of your tuition. And if they make a little bit more, we'll fund 90%, etc. And so I went to Harvard, I believe, for about eight grand total, wow. which was less than most of my friends went to community college. So that was, you know, it's Harvard and eight grand. Yeah, I think that's a no brainer. <laughs> <laughs> and while you were there, you got your BA in sociology. And your resume says a secondary. Does that mean a second <laughs> BA in government? It's uh, Harvard likes to have funny words for everything. It's kind of like Harry Potter. Um, it's just a minor. My minor was in uh, government political science. And did you know at that point, Marie, what you were going to do when you graduated? Oh, heck no. <laughs> I had no idea. I knew it was going to be an education. But, um, you know, I went in thinking, oh, I really like politics. Um, I'm going to be a president 
uh, and then I quickly learned that that was not for me. Um, and one of the things that kind of helped me see that, and I later became a, a um, one of my jobs during college was to be a mentor to students when choosing a major. Um, and I later saw that I went into government because I cared about policies being made, but then I switched out of government into sociology because I cared more about how those policies were enacted and how they actually affected people on the ground, especially minority folks and low-income folks, and what kind of you know unintended consequences did laws passed with good intention actually have on, on the people that I most care about. Um, and so that's kind of how I found my way to, to sociology. Got it. I will get to what you and how you got your first job after you graduated. But first, what clubs or activities or social groups or internships were you involved in that you actually think now were assets once you started looking for a job? Yeah. Um, I would say that almost more so than most of my classes, a lot of my experiences during college were what shaped me to be able to live and, and succeed in the world the way I do. Um, first, I was on the varsity sailing team, um, which I know sounds kind of dorky, but I swear sailing is actually hard. Um, <laughs> and so I walked onto that after thinking I wasn't going to play sports. And that was about a 40 hour week commitment. Um, and you're traveling all the time and you're on the water in Boston. So it's half the time that water's frozen um, and splashing in the face. And that's what you get up every morning at 6 a.m. to do. Um, so that taught me not only, um, you know, a lot of resilience and, and how to work through and work as a team, um, but also how to balance my schedule. I didn't get to sleep in. Um, I didn't get to wait until the last night and pull an all nighter because I then needed to wake up and go to a regatta that day. Um, and so I had to learn how to balance my time. So I think just having that constraint on me really helped. You know, they say if you need something done, give it to a busy person. I, I need to write this paper in two hours because that's all the time I have. <laughs> um, and so I think that helped make me extremely efficient. But then there are some other experiences that, you know, at the time, whew, um, I did not appreciate. But I think looking back, I really do. Um, one summer I worked what's called dorm crew, where Basically, um, the people that need the money, and you can imagine who those folks are, um, you know, they're not your trust fund kids, are uh, cleaning the, specifically the bathrooms of the kids that have left um, for the summer. And so I, my job was literally to take a, a credit card and scrape showers. And sometimes like the kids that were there that, you know, that was their room were there while you were scraping their shower with a credit card because we're all green and we didn't want to use harsh chemicals. Um, and so that really taught me a lot about beyond just the educational inequities. People are arriving at college with very different resources and just kind of having to work hard because that's that's just where you're at and you're going to have to work hard if you want to not be there. So um, I think that was a very valuable experience in hard work and and just the way the world works. Um, and then I also was a bartender for a while. And I loved that because I knew any town I lived in, there was probably going to be a bar and I could always have a side job as a bartender. And it was great. And I did that a few times after college as well. <laughs> so what I don't is, know if that's as What are your best but... <laughs> drinks that you make? Oh, I pour a mean glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it was a student-run pub, so we actually didn't have hard liquor, so oh, I didn't okay. actually have to learn to make any hard drinks. <laughs> got it. Got it. Fair enough. I also see on your resume that you were in the first-generation college student program and that yeah. you're the co-founder. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, this, the, it didn't really, um, it's taken, it's gotten a lot of, picked up a lot of speed, uh, steam since I left. But, um, when I first got there and realized that I was a first generation college student and I, and that was part of why I was so confused immediately, I was like, this can't be the way that this goes. Harvard can't be this unwelcoming to two kids that it's, you know, they've worked so hard and became the first in their family to go to college. This, we can't lose them because of the challenges that they're facing either at home or because they don't have some of these resources. Like, you know, if your parents went to college or especially if your parents also went to an Ivy League school, you can turn to them and say, hey, I'm having trouble picking between these classes or um, I'm not sure what to what to purchase for my dorm. Um, they know the answer. Whereas I and my friends still make fun of me for this. I'm on my way to Harvard. I'm sitting there on Facebook Messenger. Facebook just got invented, so I'm still not even sure how to use it. Messaging people saying, do I need to bring a bed? <laughs> and, you know, people would laugh at that now because, of course, you don't need a bed in college. All the dorms have beds. Well, I didn't know that. I right. had no one to ask. Right. Uh, and so that's the type of thing that I saw as an issue. And I had a few other people. Um, Kevin Jennings is now kind of he kind of took it after I graduated and ran with it. I wish I'd had more time after I graduated to help, but I was trying to run a classroom in Mississippi, so <laughs> didn't have a lot of uh, time to assist. But Khadijah Williams, one of my old mentees, uh, she was first generation. She was also um, on Oprah because she went from being homeless to Harvard. Um, and so she was one of my mentees that kind of helped me start it. And now there's a full-blown first-generation college student mentoring club. And so we're assigned as mentors to a first-gen um, Harvard student and kind of just serve as a mentor that, to them so that they can ask us, do I need to bring a bed to my dorm instead of having to ask somebody else or be too afraid to ask? And so that way there's at least somebody else saying, I've been through this too. I'm a shoulder you can lean on and I'm a place you can ask those questions that you don't want to ask anybody else. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's oh, thanks. really, really cool. And my mom was the first in her family to go to college. And I know just growing up, she used to tell us about how hard she had to work and how hard her parents had to work, but at the same time, weren't able to be the kind of resource that you're referring to, for mm -hmm. sure. And that was back in the late 50s. Right, so, so she couldn't Facebook Facebook anybody and ask them what to do. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. So how did you decide to go to work for Teach for America? And I'm assuming that was your first job out of Harvard. Yeah, it was. Um, I think I probably decided around um, the beginning of junior year to work for Teach for America because I saw it as a way to, you know, I knew I wanted to go in education and I just felt like if I didn't start in the classroom, I wouldn't really understand. And I think I still kind of believe that. Um, I think there are some ways that you can get into education that aren't teaching. But um, I think, as I mentioned in the espresso shots, you got to get close to a classroom to understand really what's going on. And so I knew that. And then I knew that Teach for America was a pretty solid way to do that. Whereas if I 
because I knew that I wanted to teach first. But if I just applied to some random school district, I wouldn't have the same resources. So that was big for me. But I definitely had this kind of crisis of conscience where I looked at my friends around me that were all going into, you know, big three consulting firms and knew what type of paychecks they were going to be getting. And so there was a little while where I really questioned my choice towards the end of senior year when I'd already been accepted to TFA that I was like, why don't I go work at Bain or McKinsey and make 100K my first year versus I taught in Mississippi for 30K a year. And my little sister, while I was working in Mississippi, she was making more working full time at Panera than I was as a teacher. So there was definitely some some times where, you know, I, I don't want to say like, oh, I found my calling and I just got it. You know, every day was just sunshine and rainbows and I'm making a difference. Like, no, there were definitely times um, and still are where I question myself and, and question my choices. But um, TFA did seem like the natural choice. And eventually that is the choice I made. But that's not without times where I questioned myself. What was that experience like? Very, I don't think you got a lot, enough time to, to hear about all of it, but um, <laughs> uh, it was, I, I'm very glad that I did it, um, but it was a very, very hard, hard journey. Um, I think partially because I was so young and um, I guess I would almost say so, I thought I was so disenfranchised. I didn't think I had the rights to push back on things. So for example, I, I was supposed to teach in Atlanta. Um, and then about a week and, and that was from, I got my decision in November senior year. And so you picture me from November to May, I'm having a great time. I know that I got a job. I'm all set. And then about a week before graduation, TFA calls and says, just kidding. There's been a huge scandal in Atlanta public schools. You can't go there anymore. We're going to send you to Mississippi call us back in 12 hours and accept or decline. If you decline, you don't have a job. Oh my God. Yeah. And I had actually taught in Mississippi as an internship. So I knew what it was like. And I had said that that I marked it on my thing, on my application. That is the one place I wouldn't go because I didn't want to go back to rural farming poverty. Like I've seen this, this movie, don't want to watch it again. (laughs) Um, and so I had, you know, just a 12 hour panic attack. And then eventually accepted. But little did I know, I mean, if I had just said, no, I want to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, or I want to go to South Dakota, they would have found me a job. There's teacher shortages all over. Um, But I didn't know to push back. Mm. Um, And so I think that was, that kind of is an allegory for how most of those two years were, was that I spent so much time listening to what I thought were adults, because I wasn't one. I was 22. How could I be an adult? But you are. You don't realize it, that just you know, <laughs> a few months pass from May to June to now, what, it's September. And now you're an adult. Yeah, you actually are. Um, and so I wish that I had advocated for myself more and I think it would have gone differently. Um, but to get back to just overall how it was, um, my students were amazing. Um, I learned so much more from them than they probably ever could have learned from me. Um, and it really taught me about the systemic problems in education and where people, a lot of well-meaning people have gone wrong in making curriculum or policy um, or just all sorts of decisions that impact kids that they did without really thinking through all of it or without thinking especially about how that would impact low-income and minority students. And so ultimately I saw that my personality type is very much a perfectionist Um, And I'm very like, if I input A and someone else inputs B, together we will get out C. And that is the way it goes. And so when I input A 
and then there's a fire drill and I don't get to see C, I get very upset because I didn't get to kind of follow that effort into a product. And so like when I'm teaching my kids to, to learn how to read and they're not getting it, I feel like I'm a failure when actually it's that they're reading on a pre-K level and the only books I have are at a fourth grade level. Um, and so it's that type of, I don't want to call them failures, but those type of barriers that I saw that were upsetting me, I couldn't just say, okay, well, I'm upset by this. I'm going to leave teaching because it's not the right role for me. I said, I'm upset by this. Now I'm going to go find another role that allows me to tackle this. Um, and so that's ultimately why I left the classroom to then go try to knock down those barriers that I saw to success when I was in the classroom. Gotcha. Marie, I try to ask all time for coffee guests this same question. And that is, you know, I obviously have a few more miles on my odometer than you do. Um, (laughs) I've had my ups and downs in my career. And I was wondering if you would share a story with the Java Junkie community about a low time for you in your profession. Maybe it's back at Teach for America. Maybe it's somewhere else when you really had to dig deep to keep going. There have been some guests I've interviewed who've been fired, who've had to recover from that, who've had startups that have failed, had bad bosses. Whatever your story is, could you please share how you dealt with it and how you came through the other side? Yeah, I mean, um, during my time when in Mississippi while I was teaching, um, it was already a very hard experience. Um, but then I also was in a really bad car accident um, and had some things going on in my personal life back home that it just, I, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to make it from day to day because not only did I need to, you know, just can, you know, take care of myself, but every day I had somewhere between 28 and 32, you know, seven and eight year olds walking in who needed me, who had even bigger problems going on in their lives. And so it was really mentally and physically, because I was still injured from my car accident, um, draining to know that not only did kids need me, there wasn't really anyone there that you know, could be there for me that I needed because I had moved to a whole new state. I didn't know anyone in Mississippi when I moved there. You know, I'm originally from upstate New York. So that's, you know, pretty much across the country. Um, and so, you know, socially it was difficult. Mentally it was difficult. Physically it was difficult. And so I just, I knew I needed to make it through. I just, I could not quit on my kids. Um, even though even my parents were saying like, so, you know, you, what does what your contract look like? Couldn't you uh, maybe leave? And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, it was, it was that bad that even my parents were asking me to quit. Um, and so I tried everything. Um, I started going to counseling again, um, which I firmly firmly believe that for everyone's socio-emotional health, you, everyone needs a good counselor. (laughs) I second that. Um, No matter what is going on in your life, if you think it is perfect, you still could use a great counselor. (laughs) And so I got a counselor. I started going to church. I try, you know, tried hanging out with different friends. I tried a lot of things, um, exercise and whatnot, but basically I realized that I'd kind of lost myself in trying to be this perfect teacher. Um, and needed to really refine myself. And I don't think that that happened for about two to two and a half years after I left the classroom. I picked up and moved to Dallas without uh, actually having an official job and just because it felt right. And my dad, you know, he knew I couldn't stay in Mississippi. I even had one doctor tell me, Miss, I don't know what's wrong with you. I think you just need to leave this state. 
it's been real hard on you. <laughs> um, so um, I, I just picked up and moved to Dallas because it felt right. And that's not the type of thing that I normally do. But I just did it because I my heart said it made sense. And I came here and I, I just tried to to start over. You know, I, I got back to, to working out the best that I could. Um, I started, you know, having actually social time in my life again, you know, immediately I started by getting a job in DISD, my salary almost doubled from what I was making in Mississippi just by way of um, price of living. And so, so some of that was, you know, I was beyond, besides the, the, the low pay, I was also in debt from my car accident. So I was basically living in poverty throughout all of this as well, oh, which I had just God. graduated from Harvard, vowing I would never go back into poverty. So it was very, there was a lot of kind of PTSD around, you know, actual you know, diagnosed PTSD from the, from the car accident, but also from, you know, what am I doing? I just graduated from Harvard and now I'm back in, you know, this, this rural place dealing with all the same problems I grew up with. And so there was a lot of what I called crisis of conscience. Um, but it just took, you know, getting to Dallas and, and finding my confidence again, my confidence was just shot. My principal hated me and would constantly tell me that my handwriting was too bad, so I couldn't be a teacher, um, things like that. And so I just, I was broken um, and I needed to allow myself the time to heal. And I I didn't realize that until, again, I got another really good therapist, Um, but also just taking time for myself and starting to remember, oh, right, you really love doing, you know, that painting. Oh, right. You really love brunch. (laughs) (laughs) And just getting getting into a a space where I could rediscover myself um, and heal. So I don't know if that really answers your your question, but I I can just say I'm so my life. It it felt like I was living in black and white during those years. And I promise all of your listeners, there is color on the other side. (laughs) You just have to make it through sometimes. Thank you so much for sharing that, Marie. That really sounds like it was the depths of despair, the depths. (laughs) But how strong you are, that you stuck it out and you healed yourself. Yeah, which I would just say, like, the healing yourself is is the biggest piece, is no one's going to heal you for you. How many boyfriends did I try to have that I thought was going to fix my heart, too, right? Like, that's, <laughs> you have to fix yourself. Your job is not going to fix you. Your your parents aren't going to fix you. Like, it's not your friend's job, either. Like, it has to start with you deciding to get healthy. And sometimes healthy does not mean, you know, you're not recovering from a heroin addiction. Sometimes healthy is recovering from a work addiction where you think you need to work every minute of every day. Um, and so taking a step back and figuring out what you need to do to help yourself is the first step. The fact that you have learned that and internalized that at such a young age is really incredible. So kudos to you. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Marie, final time for coffee question for you. If you could go back to Harvard or whatever school you wanted to and do the college experience all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have today, what advice would you give yourself? I would say that everybody felt as uncool as I did. (laughs) 
<laughs> Everybody, when you get to college, even though some people may have had a little bit more experience first, um, you know, like a, if you went to a boarding school, that's a lot more similar to college. Maybe your adjustment isn't as big, but either way, like this is still everyone's first day of college. And I think everybody has, especially at that time in your life, man, you just think all eyes are on you. Well, all eyes aren't on you because everyone's eyes are on themselves thinking that all eyes are on them. <laughs> and so I wish I'd just given myself permission to to have confidence. <laughs> I, I just thought that I wasn't allowed to because I knew that I didn't know what I was doing. But even though, yes, I had, you know, classmates that could ask their parents um, what classes to take. And yeah, I <laughs> I always felt so self-conscious because my clothes weren't cool enough. Um, and, you know, my hair was always not quite right and in style. But like everyone feels that way. <laughs> and I wish I had just relaxed a little bit more on that front. Um and kind of gone with the flow my first couple of years. So I think I really, I don't want to say wasted the first two years of college, but definitely misused the first two years of college thinking that, that there was this like cool uh, threshold that I had to hit in order to be confident in myself. <laughs> and then I got to, you know, junior year and I'm like, oh, I can just decide to be confident. Got it. <laughs> so if you want to make your that decision first, first week of freshman year, highly would recommend. <laughs> Marie, I am going to take a picture and send you the picture of me in my senior year yearbook at Middlebury. <laughs> and if you want to see what an uncool haircut, clothes, yeah. all of that looks like, that was me. So you were light years ahead of me, my dear. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we all have similar photos. <laughs> Marie, thank you so much for sharing and for just being such a generous person with your experiences over the last number of years. And I wish you continued professional and personal happiness, success as you continue your journey. Thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, like I said to you offline, please keep doing this because I wish that I had this, you know, five years ago for someone to tell me like, here's the path forward. Um, so just, yes, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you again. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.